constructive, positive attitude or enthusiastic attitude really makes a difference for them. So. Consider your current scope of responsibilities and make sure that you are doing everything you can to make that uh, just very best delivery as possible. Creating this dynamic of parents saying we're not getting what we're paying at the same time, we are investing more and more and more. Welcome to ISS EDU Learn Ask Me Anything with Mike and Dana. Here we'll be exploring how international schools are innovating and transforming education around the world. From the latest trends and insights to stories from teachers and administrators, you'll get the inside look to the global education landscape. So join us as we explore what the future of international education has in store. Get ready to be inspired, challenge the status quo, and embrace a world of possibilities. Welcome back to ISS EDU Learn. Ask me anything with Mike and Dana, brought to you by ISS.edu. I am Mike P., your favorite educator interviewer, and I'm here with my co-host Dana Watts, who is a director of learning research and outreach at ISS. Dana, how's it going? Things are great. It's a Friday. What could be wrong? It is a Friday. Nothing is wrong. <laughs> Before we get started today, just a few housekeeping items. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and leave us a review. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Spotify. Don't forget to visit us on iss.edu slash events in order to know of all of our upcoming job fairs and also of all our upcoming PDs. Today, we're going to be discussing a balanced approach to assessment for learning that includes conversations and performance-based observations as key components. We have Damien Cooper, who is the author of Rebooting Assessment, a practical guide for balancing conversations, performances, and products and he's here to share his insights with us today. We're going to be exploring a revolutionary approach to assessment for learning that integrates conversations and performance-based observations to foster deeper student engagement, greater equality, and increased reliability. So come on in and uncover the role of formative and summative assessments, triangulation, and digital evidence in assessment, and learn how to create positive relations with students to support assessment. Damien, how are you doing today? I'm very well, Mike. How are you? I, I'm here. I'm here. I cannot complain. We're going to start off with my first question. Let's start off with what is a balanced approach to assessment? Let's start with that. Yes. Well, from my point of view, balance, and that doesn't mean equal amounts of, but just appropriate amounts of, basically three ways that we can learn about, uh, gather evidence of what students have learned. And particularly at the secondary level, there's been a preponderance, an overemphasis on we'll have students write about it. For everyone a day, the secure test, the secure exam, the term paper, the essay have kind of reigned supreme when it comes to assessment. And when we were living very much sort of in a a knowledge society where education was largely about uh, those in the know, the instructors, the teachers, imparting information to those who didn't know, students, then that approach to assessment was very much, okay, I'll have the students spit back to me what they have memorized about what I have taught them. That's a very crude and somewhat exaggerated, perhaps, statement of the way so much assessment or how assessment has been dominated by the written mode. And I'm arguing that in today's world, where if we look at curriculum documents around the world, 
The number of outcomes having to do with knowledge retention is diminishing rapidly. And instead, we're seeing more and more curriculum outcomes having to do with skills, competencies, and understanding. And my argument is that if we want to assess students' ability to converse, to argue, to debate, to problem solve, to think critically, then relying upon paper-based assessments is not only inadequate, but often invalid. So I'm arguing that we need to see students demonstrating their skills while they're doing a science experiment, while they're engaged in debate. And similarly, if we use conversation to probe understanding, we tend to get a far deeper insight into what a student has learned than by simply having them respond to a, a prompt on a page. So what are the implications of a balanced classroom assessment on student learning outcomes? Okay, so in terms of student learning outcomes, I'm certainly, my work is clearly illustrating that we can gain far deeper insight and actually end up with more valid evidence of student learning if we triangulate our approach. In other words, and I always go back to, sorry, my sort of tried and true cliched analogy in the world outside of school. Could you actually say that Mike has certified himself, proven to me that he's ready to drive a car if the only piece of evidence that I gather is his score on the multiple choice test based on the driver's handbook? Don't I need to see Mike actually drive the car? <laughs> and don't I actually need to see over time and perhaps talking with Mike, whether he in fact has the necessary attitudes disposition, which will indicate that he is a responsible driver with respect for himself and others on the road. So the implications for students is, and, and the other thing of course is that I spent much of my teaching career working with students who were learning disabled dyslexic. And so they typically had learned far more than I ever was able to gather evidence of if I only relied upon written prompts. But by talking to them, so taking away that difficulty they had with committing answers to paper, by talking to them or by watching them and listening to them, I would get a far deeper and more accurate picture of the learning that had occurred. But for teachers, and I thought perhaps that was going to be your question, maybe a follow-up question, there are huge implications for how classrooms have to operate differently if a teacher is relying heavily on a more balanced approach, i.e. through conversation and performance. But we'll perhaps get to that before we're done today. Well, we can jump into that right away if you want. But you know I'm going to end up probably derailing this a little bit. I wonder, so when you were talking, I was kind of thinking that you kind of described three parts of like the triangulation, right? So there's the content that we need to know, right? Then there's the skills, like, can you actually drive? But then there's almost a behavior, like, because we know that people can drive and they can be rude, right? They're honking, they're cutting you off, they're doing things mm. like that. And so when we think about grading, we've actually taken behavior out of the grading, but I almost sometimes wonder if it's such an important component. Like, I don't want to work with someone who's mean, right? Like, I think, like, and I have that, like, we've got a great team in our PD department and Mike and Molly Faye and our colleague Gita, like, we like have a ton of fun together, right? But like, it's the behaviors of us in addition to our skills 
and the content, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have that triangulation and Mm -hmm. in the work environment that matters. You can't be horrible. And so is it wrong to take that part? I know that that goes against a lot of research at the moment, but is it wrong to take the behavior out of a grade or is it just something? Dana, such an important question you've raised and a critical one. I certainly have long argued that we need to take out the behavioral component. And I mean, when I was teaching, if you can believe it, I had sort of 15 or 20 percent of a student's final grade to play around with. And it was vaguely described as effort. I mean, for heaven's sake, if ever there was a source of bias, it was a white man European extraction having 15 or 20 percent to play around with in terms of what effort looks like because effort looks very different depending on one's background, one's culture, one's language, and all sorts of things. So the point, what we've seen over the past 30 years, and certainly Ken O'Connor's work has been significant in this area, is we need to take those affective variables, dispositions, commitment, initiative, dependability, cooperation, all, and you pointed out how critical those interpersonal kinds of skills are and dispositions. But what we don't want to do is confuse, bias, muddy the picture of achievement. We simply have to look at those variables separately. And we need to I would say assess them, absolutely. But the kinds of summaries that we use to assess, summarize students' position on those is they are qualitative. So we need to talk about, if we're talking about dependability, the key variable there is frequency. It's no good, Dana, if you're dependable in the first week on a new job. We need to look at trend over time. So we need to look at, as as Art Costa talked about years ago, have these become habits of mind? Does Dana simply demonstrate dependability as a part of who she is and how she works? So we need to look at those things over time, not one moment like in an exam. And furthermore, we need to describe them qualitatively and not do something as stupid as as attach percentage grades to them or or letter grades. So that's why a frequency scale such as rarely, sometimes, usually and routinely, that is an appropriate summative scale to report to students and parents on those dispositions, those interpersonal skills. That makes sense because that's ultimately what we're looking for or should be. So a follow-up question is, so do you think, okay, so I totally agree and approaches to learning and dispositions, I think should be separate and shouldn't get a, a grade. But I'm almost wondering, do we have three things that we really should be reporting on? Because, and when I think about the standards, right? So we have the content. And when I look at like Common Core, it's very content driven. But when I look at next generation science standards, or I look at the C3 standards, there are a lot of skill-based things in there, right? And taking action on your learning and things of that. And I almost wonder, will report cards end up separating into, yes, it's standards-based, 
but then we also have like a skill based, <laughs> like, so we have the content and we have skills and we have dispositions. And as if we're really assessing how all three of those merge together for students, because it would give us a little bit more, because you can have the skills, but not the content. You can have the content without the skills. I agree with you. And maybe the hang up is the word standards. We can use the term standards and say there are content standards and there are skills and competency standards. And then we've got dispositions, which we typically don't use the term, the umbrella term standards to refer to. But I agree with you. that Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. <laughs> Always. One of the problems in the past with traditional assessment was that the content that was being assessed very often was knowledge. And as the absolutely seminal work of Grant Wiggins back in the early 90s reminded us, don't confuse knowledge with understanding. Knowledge, students can memorize things, spit them back and get a perfect score on a test or, or on a term paper. And then the moment that they have written the, the test or the paper, they forget the things that they memorized. Understanding is entirely different. Understanding has to do with conceptual assimilation of facts and ideas into one's schema so that then you say, oh, now I get it. It's sort of the penny drops. So in mathematics, for example, students can memorize how to add, subtract, multiply, divide, and they, they can actually, through drill and practice, they can get perfect scores on simple tests because they simply plug in the values. But then if you ask them to explain what they're doing and you ask them a question like, how is multiplication similar to addition? What? Yeah. Well, they got nothing to do with each other. Well, then there's no understanding. How is a decimal similar to a fraction? Huh? They're totally different. Well, then there's no understanding because, of course, fractions, decimals are parts of a whole. And they're basically the same thing, just expressed in different ways. But a lot of mathematics programs, students, parents, teachers are duped into the belief that the students have actually learned when all they've done is memorized an algorithm, can plug in values, and they haven't a clue what they're doing. So there's no mm -hmm. understanding. So we need to differentiate knowledge, understanding, skills slash competencies and dispositions. What's the difference between skills and competencies? Typically, skills are necessary to learn, but a competency is that skill used in a context. So if when mm -hmm. we're assessing competencies, it's more complex. A student has learned a set of skills but when we come to assess the competencies, we present them perhaps with a real life scenario. And then we see to what extent are they able to select the appropriate skills based on the context. Now we're talking something much more complex because it's actually skill plus understanding, if you like, equals competency. So it is, it's not simple, but this is why for so many years, decades, we actually were deluding ourselves, students and parents into, well, Dana got 85, 90% in her math course. Yes, but if that was based on a narrow set of assessments, which really just had you regurgitating things and plugging in values, we were kidding ourselves about you actually understood mathematics. You simply were able to respond to a simple low-level prompt. Yep. 
As an educational professional, you likely understand the positive and crucial role inclusion has on classroom culture. And you might be on the lookout for a community of like-minded educators. Senya International is that community. Senya is a nonprofit organization that advocates for individuals with disabilities and promotes inclusive educational practices across the globe. With a network of educators, families, students, and professionals, Senya offers connection, professional learning, and support for educators like you. Connect with the Senya community via our membership program or a local chapter in your area. Enjoy professional learning with the Senya community via our podcasts, online certification program, and in-person or virtual conferences. Support Senya through our sponsorships, awards, and scholarship program. So, what are you waiting for? For more information, head to our website, senyainternational.org. That's S-E-N-I-A international.org. And together, we continue to make a difference and fulfill our vision of living in an inclusive world. Now, were any of those examples that you just gave formative or summative assessments to measure student learning? Everything I just said applies equally in a formative and a summative situation, but a great sort of bringing us back to that another discussion, Mike, which is what is the purpose of my assessment? So everything that we were just talking about in terms of those different components, mm-hmm. uh, knowledge, understanding, skills, competencies, dispositions, we need to look at those diagnostically, formatively, and summatively. So diagnostically, we're saying at the beginning of a new school year, when I've got a new group of students just come into my classroom, I need to get some baseline measures of students' knowledge, understanding, skills, dispositions. I need to see where they are before I start teaching them. That's diagnostic or initial assessment. Then I start teaching the students, hopefully in a differentiated way because I've got different students at different places, even though my timetable says I'm teaching grade 11. As we start working, engaging with students in an instructional way, then we gather data which is formative in nature. And this is we have don't expect the students to have mastered things yet, but we just want to get a read on how much have they learned, what gaps still exist, so that I can adjust my teaching and the students can adjust the work that they're doing. But this is part of the instructional process. Then at the end of a unit, the end of a term, the end of a semester, the end of a year, we need to ask the summative question where we stand back and we say, okay, I did my diagnostic, I did my formative. Now it's time to actually say, has Mike learned enough? Has Mike learned the things that we said were important in this unit, term, course, whatever it is? Then we're making evaluations we're making judgments basically is he ready to move to the next level so we're certifying your level of proficiency so there are three different purposes for assessment one to determine entry points starting points in instruction the middle one to coach provide feedback to adjust instruction to adjust the direction students are taking and the third one is kind of the icing on the cake where we certify them as proficient or not that's such an uh, explanation thank you for that oh thank you appreciate the feedback (laughs) (laughs) 
No, we're probably giving spoilers to your book, but I feel like I, I really understood. I really understood that part. My next question is, how can teachers create a learning environment characterized by trust and collaboration? Which is a prerequisite if they're going to make increasing use of performance assessment and conversational assessment. Because, of course, when the dominant form of assessment was the written test, the written exam, or the term paper, it was a one-size-fits-all. The teacher could be the sage on the stage at the front of the room, assign the work, and then collect it, take it all home, and mark it. So, in other words, the act of assessing the quality of the work typically took place as a solitary activity on the part of the teacher. When we're talking about assessment through conversation and assessment through performance, that occurs during the school day. And typically, of course, a teacher wants to have a conversation with one student or a pair of students or a small group of students mm -hmm. or observe one group doing their science inquiry or listen to one group engaged in a seminar, whatever it may be. So it begs the question, what are the rest of the students doing while the teacher is assessing those things? Now, I mean, I argue strongly in rebooting assessment that a lot of that responsibility for gathering the data during conversation and performance can rest on the students using their handheld devices, using tablets or smartphones. It does not mean that the teacher always has to be in control of the device. That having been said, these a balanced approach to assessment puts very heavy demand on the teacher to, at the beginning of a new school year, establish clearly with students the kinds of expectations around a culture of learning in the classroom that will enable the teacher not to be standing at the front sort of cracking a whip all for 40 minutes or 70 minutes each class, but can rest assured that when she is working with one group of students, engaging in conversation with them, or perhaps video recording, demonstrating their skills, that the rest of the class is meaningfully engaged in work. And so a lot of the emphasis in rebooting assessment is based on the amazing teachers who we caught captured classroom footage of, establishing those expectations, those norms around which we will operate as a class in terms of cooperation, independence, initiative, responsibility, time on task, and all those sorts of things. And I hasten to point out that the teachers who we featured doing those things were from primary right through to graduation year. It doesn't matter at what grade level we're talking about, that establishing a culture of learning and responsibility and respect for self and others that enables the teacher to be in different places, working with different groups of students. That is essential from kindergarten right through to grade 12. Now, Damon, you touched on this briefly, but in a day of uh, technology era, everyone has some sort of device and, or such in their hands. So how can teachers use this technology to create a learning environment that's characterized by trust and collaboration? It's a huge challenge, and I would say the challenge is increasing exponentially as all of us, all ages, become ever more attached 
to our devices. Mm -hmm. They are at the same time a blessing and a curse from my point of view. But I've certainly, in my experience, since cell phones became so much a part of our world, uh, I've always been intrigued by teachers who had absolutely no problem establishing appropriate use of those devices in the classroom and putting parameters around their use. I always remember a, a high school science teacher, and this was a few years ago, and she was absolutely superb. Uh, the, the students had were so crystal clear on when it was appropriate to have their devices out and when they had to be put away. And so she, at strategic points during her science lesson, she'd say, you know, we've got such important work to do during today's class, and you're going to be engaged in a scientific inquiry. I don't have time to stand at the front of the room and impart all this knowledge to you. So Google this, this question. So she would actually cue the students when it was time for them to use their devices, which actually saved her time and effort in terms of transmitting information, which was at the kids' fingertips. And she'd maybe give them a minute to do that. Okay, devices away. Now, and then, then, of course, she would draw from the students what they had just discovered through their little Google search. So those kinds of things are essential. But I certainly, at this point in my life, I realize the challenge facing teachers. But it's also about modeling. It's also about teachers themselves putting their devices away, teachers modeling the behavior that they want to see in their students. And I can't tell you pre-pandemic the number of times I became really frustrated in workshops I was doing where teachers were, were being irresponsible in terms of cell phone use and scrolling through pictures of selfies while I had given them a task to do. And I would call them on. You know, you cannot expect your students to toe the line and be respectful of using these devices if you yourself are behaving inappropriately. And of course, this by no means do I want to paint everyone with the same brush. It was always a small minority, but it was pervasive in workshops. So it was frequent in workshops that, that I was doing. And as you expressed, Damien, could you just add in how triangulation and digital evidence could support assessments? So in rebooting assessment, I'm basically suggesting that we now have at our disposal, cheap and everywhere, the missing link in terms of making performance assessment and conversational assessment more reliable. Prior to cell phones and tablets becoming so widely available, mm -hmm. when I talk to teachers about the importance of observing students while they're demonstrating their skills or listening to students, so often it was, yes, but that's so subjective because my memory in terms of when I'm filling in my grade book or, you know, it's so subjective. And it's so biased because I'm watching and, it, and it's filtered through my own sort of perspective and cultural lens. Basically, we're, what we're now saying is that if we capture a few moments of video, if we have students curate their own digital evidence, then this has been the missing piece. Because while it's not entirely true to say the camera doesn't lie, 
raw digital evidence is pretty truthful. And so, and that, that's why it's, if students are working with lab partners and, and all the students are doing their, their science lab, simply having a tablet running, which captures what they say and do. And then the teacher says to the students at the end of the lab, I want each group to curate from that 20 minute or that 30 minute recording, what were the critical moments? The critical moments in your investigation. I want you to go back and look at that video and highlight those moments. Jackie Clark featured extensively in rebooting assessment. She, in her grade three reading program, she records all of the, the times when her students, one-on-one, -on -one, she's working with them, and they read orally. And then the students actually sit down on their own after their reading conference with their teacher. They view their sample of their reading performance and they critique it. They critique their own video of them reading. And these are kids in grade three. Now, Jackie has to teach them, but when I was there and it was June, it was late in the year, these kids were brilliant. They accessed their own account from the cloud and they knew how to upload the video samples. And then those same samples of video would be used in three-way conferencing, teacher, student and parent following a reporting period where the students say, mom, I need you to watch this 30 second clip. Because here's where I, I made a huge leap forward in terms of my reading goal to break down words in, into their syllable. It's so, so, so powerful, Mike. And this is not pie in the sky. I mean, this is why in rebooting assessment, there are 40 video clips mm -hmm. of teachers doing the things I'm talking about as a routine part of their practice. Now, let's go back a little bit because you're speaking. I'm sure these teachers have different levels and you're speaking about different types of assessments here. So how can teachers use the teacher readiness scale to assess their comfort level with the different types of assessments? I'm really glad you asked that, Mike, because if there's one thing I realized over the years as a consultant, it's one size doesn't fit all in the classroom for students, and it certainly doesn't fit when it comes to teacher professional learning. And so we realize and accept that teachers are across a wide range of comfort, and competency with respect to the two things we're talking about, triangulating assessment data and using digital devices to capture evidence. We realized, and Helen Hills featured in Rebooting Assessment, she never considered recording with a, with a cell phone, her students doing their seminars, and yet she was doing this amazing balanced assessment. So the teacher readiness scale, we invite teachers in chapter one, find yourself on this scale. And no worries at all if you find yourself at that um, awareness, that the level furthest to the left, where I'm just curious about this. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know more about triangulation. I'm curious about maybe using a tablet to capture evidence. So find yourself there and then maybe find someone else who works in your department who's at the, the one level up on that that you could work with and maybe work together, learn from. We want teachers to find their comfort level and then set themselves a small target to move to the next level on that scale. And the other thing that we've done in rebooting assessment is according to where teachers are currently, we've offered different application tasks suited to where they see themselves at the moment right through to at the confirmation level, perhaps working as mentors for their colleagues and sharing expertise to bring others in their school along to where, where they are. 
So it's very, very important to differentiate that everyone feels comfortable and not threatened. Yeah, thank you for that, Damien. I see our time is coming, but I do have two more questions. And so I guess we're just going to give them bonuses. Just keep it going unless you are on a tight schedule. No, no, that's absolutely fine, Mike. All right. So my last two questions. So this one would be, what strategies can teachers use to increase student engagement and create greater equity inside the classrooms? Yeah, student engagement. And again, I go back to conversation. Students become engaged if they trust their teacher, if they sense their teacher respects them, and if they feel that the teacher wants them to engage in is worthy of their time and effort. So I worked, as I, I mentioned earlier, with, with a lot of hard to serve kids over my teaching career. And I would, at the beginning of the years, I was getting to know students and having conversations one-on-one -on -one with them. And I said, never mind the school stuff, you know, what really turns your crank outside of school? What's your passion? Oh, nothing. Mm -hmm. And I would never accept a kid saying nothing. Come on, what do you love to right, do? Right. And find that, find that passion, find that one area of their lives that they actually feel confident in and good at. Let's start there. As an English teacher, I would say, well, I'm sure we can find some things to read related to skateboarding, related to your particular genre of music that you mm -hmm. love or whatever it is. Let, let's start there. So I'm going to help you improve your, your reading skills, but we're going to do it through the thing that you love, because then the student is going to be motivated to learn and improve their skills because they're actually engaging with their passion. That's so, so important. And of course, what that means is differentiating. It doesn't mean every student's going to read the same damn text that only maybe 5% of the class is interested in. And so the multi-text approach in the English classroom is a critical way to go. Let's go with science. In science, I'd be engaging kids around the climate crisis that we face. And, you know, do you think you're going to have kids, maybe grandkids? Do you want them to have a planet that's livable? Let's approach our science program maybe from that perspective of you as a future parent, rather than through my eyes, because I'm too old, you know, the planet's not going to burn up before I die. So those are the kinds of things. And what that's hugely about, Mike, is I love that Andy Hargreaves, who work I've admired for a long time, did a TED talk a few years ago, and he talked about the need for teachers to find the white spaces in the curriculum. Find the white spaces. In other words, find the space beneath the required standard where there's room for you and the teacher to negotiate common ground. I love that. Find the white spaces. Find the sweet spots, which the kid who previously had no interest in physics is going to say, hey, that's really cool. Maybe it's the physics of a skateboard. Maybe it's the physics of, of getting a basketball to drop through that hoop. Because there's, there's science everywhere. There's math everywhere. There's English literature everywhere. There's social studies everywhere. But make those connections. Look at the world outside. Within all the, of these subjects that you mentioned, do you find that there's benefits to student assessment and peer assessments? Hugely. It's another wonderful way to engage students. And the other thing, as we know, particularly from the research that surrounds assessment for and as learning, we know for a fact that the more students 
are required to engage in self and peer assessment, the more reflective they become, the more metacognitive they become, i.e. cognizant of their own performance. So we can actually move the dial from students blaming the teacher, oh, you just don't like me, that's why I always get poor marks, to the student saying, yeah, I, I can see this work I did today really doesn't come close to the standard. So engaging students in self and peer assessment, which ironically, over the years as a consultant, I've seen far more self and peer assessment in the primary and junior grades than I have in the intermediate and senior grades, mm. which is all wrong exactly, because yeah. we want students to become ever less dependent on the teacher to know if their work's any good as they mature, instead of which it's tended to go the other way. So self and peer assessment is so powerful. But, you know, again, it means the teacher has to make time in the instructional day to teach those kinds of skills. Assessment's about the most difficult thing we do as teachers. So we have to invest time in having students become competent in it. But the benefits are huge. And perhaps most importantly, kids can become more honest and reliable with respect to looking at the quality of their own work. Wow, Damon. Well, thank you for your time today. Did you have any last advice that you wanted to give teachers who are getting started or wanted to explore? I just, uh, well, I, I just to end with, again, a nod to Grant Wiggins and the phenomenal contribution. And it was Grant who first pointed out to my colleagues and me as we spent time with him at his bed and breakfast in Geneseo, New York. And it was the first time I'd heard the statement made that the word assess doesn't mean judge, measure, count, evaluate. It comes from the Latin acidere, which means to sit with, to sit beside. And if ever there was a reminder to of the importance of conversation and gaining the respect of students and getting them to trust you, Let's do more acidering with our students, more sitting with them. Wow, that's beautifully. Wow, that's beautifully said. <laughs> Damien, how can our listeners reach out to you if they wanted to email? Or uh, well, so absolutely. Email DamienCooper11 at gmail.com. Twitter at CooperD1954. I'm going to tell you, I'm not a massive user of social media. I, I still love to use email. Uh, visit my website, planteachassess.com, uh, to learn more about my work. And uh, everything really that we talked about today is captured in Rebooting Assessment that was published by Solution Free last February. So it's widely available through Solution Free, Amazon, wherever else. So I know that sounds like a crude commercial, but please, I believe so passionately in, in what's in that resource. Not at all, Damien. Thank you so much for that resource. Thank you for our listeners for joining us today as we discussed a balanced approach to assessment for learning that includes conversations and performance-based observations as key components. We hope that you feel more confident in your ability to create a better learning environment characterized by trust and collaboration, utilizing formulative and summative assessments to assess student learning outcomes, and understanding the implications of a balanced classroom assessment of equity. Thank you again for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time on ISS EDU Learn, Ask Me Anything with Mike and Dana. See you next time, fellow educators. Bye-bye.